welcome to the Dad Strength Podcast, helping you take care of yourself so that you can be present for your people. The Dad Strength Podcast is an Unlearning Network production. My name is Jeff Gervitz, and I am your host, I am your guide, and I am reminding you to breathe in, hold it, breathe out, and then hold it again. Breathwork is not new. It's been around in yoga, in martial arts, in pretty much any mystical religious practice, Buddhism, Taoism, and Sufism come to mind. The resurgence of breathwork in North America came along with all of the hallucinogens in the 1960s. And two or three generations later, we are navigating our way back there through all of it, and for good reason. My guest today is a leader in making breathwork more modern, more accessible, and I have to say sexy enough to enter the mainstream. You know, whatever gets the job done. Robbie Bent's journey makes you want to dust off the old Joseph Campbell books. Really one of the best origin stories I know. Back as a young upstart, Robbie got into private equity and hedge funds. He figured that's where successful people went. And he really wanted to be successful. He was smart. He was capable. Robbie's kind of a beast, really. And he was hoping to find the recognition and esteem he was looking for in this world. He was grinding to get there with 100-hour weeks And his life had all the trappings of success. And trapping is a pretty good word here because his cost of living made it hard for him to disengage, even after the luster had worn off. It wasn't long anyway, though, before the hedge fund imploded, along with a lot of other things back in 2008. He rallied and got a telecom startup going. And he was just 24 at the time. He grew the company from seven to 100 members. And he raised a ton of capital along the way. A lot of that came from friends and family. And that was part of the problem. Because for the last two years of the three and a half year lifespan of the company, Robbie woke up every day with an oppressive fear of letting people down. His friends, his family, his team. He was drinking. He was using cocaine heavily. And the weight of potential failure wasn't easing off. And then the company crashed. Robbie went from being a high roller to living in his parents' basement and not even being able to afford a meal out. Robbie needed a reset. He moved to Israel just for a complete change. And there he got into meditation. He did his first silent retreat where he racked up about 100 hours of meditation in 10 days. Things began to change for him and he began to look to himself for the things he needed. He began experimenting with psychedelic medicines, ayahuasca retreats, the whole LSD 25 yards. He met his future wife who introduced him to nutrition and breath work and a lot of practices that would become essential to who he is now. Are we done? No, we are not done. This just takes us to 2017 where he got involved with crypto. And I don't mean halfway. He worked full-time for the Ethereum Foundation on ecosystem development He was a digital nomad during this four-year stretch, and he was also becoming more and more passionate about teaching meditation and breath work, and eventually the value of saunas and cold exposure. Back in Toronto now, Robbie set up an ice bath in his backyard and began inviting friends and neighbors over. He noticed how great people felt, not just during these sessions, but the next day too, And that was notable, socializing in a way that left people feeling great, basically the opposite of a hangover. When winter came, he built out his garage to include a sauna as well as a cold plunge. And meanwhile, the 
WhatsApp group that people had been using to book exploded to over a thousand members. Robbie and his crew knew that they were onto something. So now you've got all the resilience training, breath work, hot and cold exposure, and a community that was loving it. Robbie took another big step and he left the Ethereum Foundation to create Othership. He built that community out to 3,000 people in the physical space and another 2,500 using the Breathwork app before even taking any investment. And since then, Othership has plugged into some notable investors, including Vine, the founders from uh, SoulCycle, and Sean Puri. It has been really incredible to watch this combination of skill, of love, of curiosity, and genuine community, not to mention some legit business savvy. If you've been listening to the Dad Strength podcast for a while, you know that Othership is one of our sponsors. Want to know why? Because I think Robbie is tremendous and I love what he's created. So I will just quickly mention that you can try out the Breathwork app for free by visiting othership.us. But Robbie has also shared a track with us. So you'll get a bonus at the end of this episode. My advice is to go right into it wherever you are. That is the beautiful thing about breath work. It is always with you. It is always something you can practice in one way or another. Now for my interview with Robbie Bent. Let's get into it. What's your handle, stranger? Yeah, they call me Robbie. Robbie Bent, man. That's it. So you probably got more on your plate right now, perhaps, than you can rightly handle. Knowing more about that than the average bear, how do you, how do you juggle everything? How do you prioritize? So I think it's really, you know... Yeah, it's such an interesting question, right? Because you can push yourself super hard. And I've worked with people, you know, best entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley, where their entire goal is like, build the craziest thing possible. And so I was an early employee at Ethereum. And I watched engineers I know work like 18 hours a day. And it always ends in burnout every time. And, and, and this is like, you know, you have your meditation, your perfect eating, your perfect sleep, you don't drink, you're taking nootropics, you're like listening to Ben Greenfield and, and the Dad Strength podcast, you're dialed in. And even if you're dialed in like perfectly, you just can't push your body that hard for that long. And so the question is, you know, how I think about it is like, how long can I sprint for? And what starts to happen? And so what I'll notice, like I'll be tracking my caffeine intake. And so, you know, when it's baseline, it's a green tea, then it's, you know, black tea and green tea, then it's like coffee, black tea, green tea, then it's like two coffees, then it's three coffees. And then it's like, okay, you're, you're going too hard. And so that just happens to be a barometer for me. And what happens when you're going too hard is you're, you're, you're kind of like frantic pushing stuff forward. Okay. This fire, this fire, everything's moving, but it becomes harder to zone out and like actually prioritize like your, your question. And so for me, the first is watching what my mental state is. And that's how I prioritize is like, where am I at in terms of my ability to actually like zone out and relax? You know, what also happens when you get too busy, like the workouts start falling off. That's another great barometer. So I think my, you know, for somebody who's struggling with prioritization, you can, you can go like, I, I just, my point was people are insane and they'll <laughs> go as hard <laughs> as they can, but you're giving up something by doing that. Even if you're dialed in, and you're giving up like the ability to get into deep work, to do deep thought. You're giving up like some of your emotional um, capabilities. So your stress response is, is difficult. Um, when you're dealing with people, you're going to get angrier, you know, lose your temper. So all of those are signs. And so I think the first thing to think is like, how hard do you want to go and for how long? And like, where are you at? 
and setting breaks. And so for me, what prioritizing means is, is a long answer, a lot of stuff in my mind on that question, because I'm actually like going through that now is, you know, over Christmas, I took 10 days off my phone. I'm trying to do that at least once a, a year. And then once a quarter, like a re-up. So I just was in BC for a couple of days doing an emotional training course, which we can get into, but you know, no phone in nature, three meals a day, um, just people and sharing. And so I think once a year, taking a, 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 it's not a vacation. It's a, you know, seven to 10 days without your phone and with reduced stimulus, whether it's meditation or nature or exercise, doesn't matter. It's just no phone, no work, you know, and, and it's not like, oh, I'm going to Vegas for vacation and drinking every night. It's like, I'm taking some time for myself to be bored. You scheduled boredom, we'll call it. Um, Sorry, a lot there. We'll stop there for a minute. We can dive in or keep going. Well, that's that's lots. I mean, the coffee stands out because, you know, I think achievers are going to get it done. But then what do you need to do to get it done? And if, if it's adding up like that, yeah, there's going to be uh, there's going to be some fallout. We've got to measure our recovery or our, our relaxation by how do you feel at the end of it? And, you know, um, pro tip, not by feeling more ragged than when you started. So you're deliberately taking these, these breaks. And this is something, you know, um, I know you've, you've done for a long time from meditation retreats to dopamine fasting, um, to time in nature. And I think that what you've been building, and I've heard you describe this as sort of, um, a place to integrate, right? Because we go away and whether you're doing a, a silent retreat or you're doing, you know, a psychedelic medicine or wh whatever it is, um, you're going to have epiphany, you're going to have insight, and then you come back into your regular life and there's like a lag because you have the, the same environment and the same habits. And, and so can you talk about how, you know, what you created to solve for this? Yeah, I think at its root level, it's, it's space to shift your emotional state, your nervous system state. And so like, okay, what does that mean? Well, Imagine, you know, if you're listening, your normal day is I wake up, I have my coffee, I look at my phone, bam, 50 emails, you know, uh, messages from my kids. What are they doing? Uh, my wife's yelling at me, you know, or my husband's yelling at me. I've got all these tasks for the day. I'm, you know, bombarded by work Slack messages. And it's just like on, it's on from the moment you wake up. Maybe you have some exercise in there. Maybe you have some meditation, but for most people, probably not. You know, it's just on, on your device and going. And so your nervous system state is just tweaked, like chronically fucking ripping. And so you're, you're in the fight or flight and like our bodies, our minds weren't meant to do that. And so what we were trying to teach people is how do you create space to change your, your nervous system state? And so what does that mean that you couldn't, you can go up, you know, so think about like you're trying to boost your energy in the morning, you can go down. So like it's after work, you've done a 14 hour day, it's before bed, you're, you're stressed about work, or you can explore and create space. So maybe you're struggling with COVID, you know, mortality fear or financial insecurity or a difficult relationship or connecting with your kids, not being content at work. All of those are emotional load. And what we're trying to teach people is that you can actually create space through physiological practices and you can do it daily. And so, yeah, it's great if you do a 10 day meditation retreat, but for most people it's insane. And so I had done a bunch of those and tried to get my friends into them. And my friends are all like engineers, bankers, lawyers, like serious people in their mind doing serious things. And they're like, 
what are you talking about? I'm not, you know, one, I'm fine. I'm busy, but I'm fine. And that's what everyone says. And like, you know, if, if you're listening, like you're not fine. We're not for like millions of years, whatever our evolution, we're not on phones the way we are now. It's in the last 10 years. And so the amount of overwhelm is like significantly different. So it's just important for people to know there's like a massive pattern interrupt that's required. So like more than ever, this need to create space is there. Um, so that's what I would say is we're building these tools that help people create space in their day-to-day -day life because they can't always go on these retreats or even see the value in them. So, you know, you're, you're go back to that person who's drinking coffee and in their day and, and you do this at bang, right? It's like, okay, that one hour I'm coming in, I'm focused on my body. I'm not thinking about work. And so we've created other ways to make that feeling more accessible, whether it's through breathing, ice baths, saunas. Um, but, but at the bottom line of what we're doing is creating space to teach people to shift and control their nervous system state. What are some of the things that people get wrong about stress? Like where, where, do, where do we need a greater understanding? I think there's like, okay, so one, stress isn't necessarily bad. Like there's something called eustress. And, and when we put our body under stress, it can improve and get stronger from a physiological standpoint. So exercise itself is a form of stress, right? Uh, hot and cold exposure to sauna, uh, exposure to ice baths are forms of stress that make our body get stronger. And if you think of the body throughout evolution, we were continuously stressed. We wouldn't eat for like four days as we were looking for food. You know, we would sleep on the ground at night in cold environments, wearing like an animal skin pelt. We would could survive in deserts. So our body is meant to like move around. So putting our body through stress is important to trigger hormonal responses and, and get stronger. So that's one, you know, not all stress is bad. And then I think there's a difference between right now, like what people think of stress, there's one, there's like emotional stress. And so we can think of that as like an overactive mind that's holding on to challenging emotions. Oh, what did that person say about me? You know, what does my boss think of me? So that's one is like overactive mind. And then um, to deal with that, you know, it's important to like release those emotions. And then number two, so that's one, like let's call it emotional stress. And then the other side of stress is physiological stress, like being in the fight or flight system all the time. And so our nervous system has two branches. One is like parasympathetic. It's called the rest and digest nervous system state. And you can think of that like you're laughing, you're eye gazing, you're eating, you know, having sex. It's like these times where you're finding meaning in your life. And the other is fight or flight. And the fight or flight is a physiological nervous system state when we're like, ready for action. And so this is great for working, for focus. And so you can think of this as like, maybe you're walking home, you're in a dark alley and you hear like, you know, boom, uh, a, a garbage can falls over and you, you freak out and you think, hey, I'm in danger. And the problem is every time you see an email, our brain doesn't know it's not real stress. So that mm -hmm. fight or flight turns on. And so, you know, you can think of, we mentioned physiological stress, good for the body, it's good to put ourselves in stress sometimes. There's like emotional stress, which is in these loops of thinking. And then there's nervous system stress, which is being too much in the fight or flight. And so I think for people to know, it's like, how do I go from that fight or flight state, which I'm in all the time because I'm on my phone and move like relax, slow through breathing, ice bath, exercise, 
artwork, you know, it, whatever, it doesn't matter what it is. It's just creating some of that space to go from fight or flight to rest and digest. So those are the two things I think people don't know necessarily is the difference between like emotional stress and thought and this like nervous system state. One of the things that, you know, I'm thinking about as you describe this is, you know, just a diversity of experience, just um, more of life, right? Um, where, where you're sort of adding that in intentionally. Tell me about, tell me about your first date with your wife. So funny, there's a couple questions. So one, we were friends for a while through like co-friends. And when I went on this kind of life transformational journey, meditation, psychedelics, all these things you mentioned, I started chatting with her through Instagram. And, you know, we talked every day for a couple of weeks while I was traveling and I came back and she picked me up from the airport and then you know, our very first date, she picked me up from the airport and I was like, Hey, I'm going to meet my mom and grandma for lunch. Like, do you want to come? And so legit, our first date was me, my wife, my mom, my grandma, which like, you know, you think like you're trying to be cool on a date. It's pretty, pretty like kind of for a lot of guys that'd be like, Oh my God, this is the nightmare for a lot of girls would be like, Oh, that's so weird. Um, but yeah, she picked me up. We went to the keg, we had dinner and it was super nice. And my, my grandma said after that date, like, Hey, I think this is going to be the girl you Mary. And she told that story at the wedding and, you know, kind of takes the claim for like calling it out on the first date, which was fantastic. But then um, what's notable is like our third date was actually um, my wife was a dietitian. She got me super into like Ben Greenfield and Rhonda Patrick and, you know, all these health podcasters and actually introduced me to the sauna and cold plunge. And so we went out again, another kind of non-traditional date. We went out to Mississauga. There's a small like strip mall with a like back alley that you go into this like Russian bathhouse. And so it kind of, it seems like it might be a massage parlor and then you go in and it's this really cool, super cute, amazing space that we actually went to every week for, for years. And that was my first ever like cold plunge and, and, and not first sauna, but first like Russian style sauna, you know, probably six, seven years ago. And uh, yeah, it was our, it was our first date, which then became the business that we've, we've started. Let's rewind a little bit. So you were coming back from, was it an ayahuasca retreat or what were you doing? I did this whole like, yeah, I was like struggling with addiction for probably 10, 12 years, like alcohol, cocaine and and trying to quit. I, I'd moved to Israel to like reset my, you know, pattern interrupt and try to build some new habits. And while I was there, I got into Vipassana meditation. Uh, through that, I learned about psychedelics. And so I was still struggling with alcohol even after that. And I was like, I can't want to stop this. And I looked online and learned about ayahuasca and it sounded insane. Like you go into the jungle alone to like drink this crazy brew with like nobody around. And so I was like, oh yeah, fuck that's for me. Like sign me up. Let's see. I want to make this change. This seems like the best way to do it. And uh, so I went and I, I did the, you know, it took two weeks. I, I wasn't doing anything at the time. I'd lost my company and I didn't, I was really like, I don't know what I'm going to do in my life. I don't have any money. I'm like feeling pretty down and trying to make things work. And so I went and did this ayahuasca retreat, spent two weeks in the jungle, sunshine, no phone, went from there to, um, you know, Peru, um, for a little while to like Machu Picchu and that kind of stuff. And then, uh, yeah, while I was on that thing, I was, you know, kind of messaging my, my wife after the, uh, my now wife after the ayahuasca retreat and it was just talking to her about it. And then I spent a few weeks in South Africa, maybe a month in South Africa after. 
And like that whole time was like talking to her as I'm going through this transformation letting go of like old habits, feeling really good. So I think it was about a month, maybe six weeks in total for all those different activities to kind of, okay, I really want to make like this concerted change right now on my own. I'm going for it. And then when I came back, uh, she was there and, you know, that was our, our first date and my whole, everything changed in that like two month period. It's amazing. Walk me through the development, um, of your, of your business or businesses from, from that point on. Yeah. So that, from that point I got back and one of the people I'd went on retreat with was, you know, business school classmate, best friend. It was the two of us together. And, uh, He's like, hey, you should come to San Francisco and like check out this Ethereum thing. You know, it's like crypto. And and this at the time, I think Ethereum was maybe six bucks. Nobody really knew what it was. This is like 2016, 2017. And I um, you know, I said I'm I'm kind of moved back to Toronto. I'm dating my wife. I have nowhere to live. So I moved into her apartment within like two weeks of living in Toronto, which she still like that's fast about. I just kind of show up with like, you know, a suitcase and a couple bags. Just like, what yeah. the fuck? <laughs> so moving with her and I'm, I'm like getting into crypto. I'm like, whoa, this is really cool. So I'm like doing all these calls, kind of helping my friend who starts this thing called Polychain at the time, which is now like, I don't know, five or $6 billion fund. But at the time it was just brand new, really tiny, two people working on it. And like, hey, this crypto thing. So I start flying out to San Francisco regularly, meeting these guys, meeting their team and seeing like, whoa, this is a cool thing. And, and all my life prior, I'd been really like obsessed with making money and being successful as like my driving force, which led to, I think, unhappiness and drug use and all this other stuff. And, and so this time I was like, you know what, I'm going to just go around smart people that are passionate. And like the energy around crypto was like, you could, you could feel it, you know, like the smartest people in the world are gathering, talking about this thing. It was like, well, this is really cool. So I end up, um, doing a bunch of projects with the Ethereum ecosystem, just kind of helping for free, strike up a good relationship with the team and join. And my wife ends up being like, Hey, yeah, I'll come with you. And so we go and embark on this like four year adventure, through San Francisco and Berlin and Thailand and Mexico and all these different cities working remotely, both of us with one bag. And while I was doing that, Ethereum explodes. It goes from this like tiny thing to like mainstream, huge thing. Like, you know, heroes of mine from, I had a tech company before and failed and, you know, I was in Toronto and I didn't really have access. And all of a sudden I'm like meeting people I've been reading about and, these crazy magazines and like, wow, I'm starting to feel good about myself. Like I'm a success and good about what I'm working on and the people I'm around. And it's like so much fun. And I had this like meditation practice daily, breathwork practice daily, psychedelics, you know, maybe quarterly. And because of all those things, my, my life starts to change. And so I'm trying to get people into them like meditation and psychedelics and just not, they're not the best starting point. So most of my friends who we mentioned before, these serious people, you know, it's like, uh, I tried Headspace, tried Calm, didn't really do anything. Or like, yeah, like ayahuasca in the jungle, what are you talking about? And so it just kind of was like, fuck. And then even people who went on these retreats, like they would come back and then their life would be different for like a month, but then they would kind of get back into their old habits. So I saw all that happening and, and, you know, we went to this bathhouse date, which I mentioned. And because I didn't want to be around alcohol, I started going to bathhouse every weekend for like years. And, you know, we'd be in Berlin and we'd get like a whole crew of 30 people, go to the bathhouse, 
hang out there and everyone would be sober and no one would have their phone and it would be such a good night. You wake up the next day like, whoa, that was fucking awesome. And so I moved back to Toronto and just as a, this was never meant to be a business, just as a side project, I built an ice bath in my backyard because the banyo was too far and I wanted to use cold water every day. And then, you know, I did the Wim Hof training and went to a bunch of his courses and was like, whoa, this is amazing. I was doing his breath work every morning and we just thought like, oh, we should just have people come through. So me and five friends every night, you know, fitness owners, juice companies, neighbors, would come to this ice bath and fire pit in our backyard. And we did that for a whole summer and built a WhatsApp community, a few hundred people. And then as winter came, it was like, oh, well, what are we going to do? So we had a garage and we just rejigged it to a little tiny sauna, ice bath, tea room, website, and it exploded. You know, thousands of people coming, all word of mouth, just like a nice place for the neighbors to like come and hang it with like good vibes, super accessible. And we started doing classes and so kind of thought like for people who are listening, like, you know, ice baths, reduce inflammation and boost the immune system. Uh, you see famous athletes using these. It's, it's kind of everywhere now. It's just clear, like world leading longevity specialist, David Sinclair, ice baths, you know, second best thing you can do for, for longevity after fasting. It's another form of this good stress. But what we saw was it actually like creates community helps people tap into their emotions, helps them shut down the thinking mind, helps them create space. And so in that garage, we started doing classes, you know, like anger release. So turn off the lights, bring to mind a moment of anger and scream it out as a group, you know, and then share yeah. what you were angry about to kind of like process it and let it go. And then this idea started to form of like, okay, you know, fitness used to be you probably remember like good life, you know, gold's gym. It's like bodybuilders and athletes. Now yep. you have like thousand different types of boutique fitness. It can be a community thing to like hang out on a, you know, Saturday afternoon with your crew and like, and do it together. And so I think the same can be said for mental health. Whereas like now it's, I use headspace at home or maybe I go see a therapist, but like, if you're going to a therapist, there's probably something really wrong that has like, you know, sent you to spend the $200 to be vulnerable with a stranger. So I was wondering like, could you make mental health, more accessible, fun, community driven, where people experience emotions together in a cool way. And so just, we've been working on this for, for three years and through like thousands and thousands and thousands of ice baths, just started designing these classes. And then through the classes during COVID, we, we launched a, you know, an online zoom platform where it was like 20 people and then 50, then hundred, and then it was a course. And, and now it's an app. And it's a breathwork app, really good music, makes it super easy to go up, down, as I mentioned, to turn the nervous system state. And so all the products together, there's, you know, this physical space you can go to with your friends. You can do a class, you can hang out without alcohol. And then you have an app to use at home where all these things are just teaching you to create space. You know, it's kind of a, a no-brainer. We all want to be healthy and we want to be strong and present in our bodies. But um, socially you know, it winds up being like wig night with the boys or you know, even the folks I know who play rec hockey, um, even if they're not crushing beers afterwards, they're up late and it's really hard to unite um, social interaction with health behaviors. And, 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 you know, that's a missing piece. Is, is that, did that come later? Did you figure that out 
like from the start or was that just sort of the emergence of this community and you saw that there was this need for it? Yeah. So it, it just was lucky. Like I was early on, you know, alcohol was an issue for me. And so you're starting to see now like seven, eight years later trend increasing of people drinking less. Um, people like, Hey, I, you know, I'm working a lot. I'm stressed. I don't really want to feel shitty. There's all these, you know, increase in biohackers, increase in health and wellness podcasts and education, increase in people who are entrepreneurs. There's just an increase in like meditation and psychedelic medicines. All these things are leading people to say like, Hey, I actually want to feel better. So there's all this education, all these groups that are growing, but like seven years ago for me, it was just like, okay, I don't want to be around alcohol. And like, what am I going to do at night? You know? And, mm -hmm. and to your point, like everything, even everybody's busy, every single person. And so you get your day, like getting to the gym, it's a, t it's a chore, you know? And so do I have time to add like a float and then like a red light therapy and then a massage and like, no, but what all people have time for, like they're, most people are socializing, you know, once, twice, three times a week, which is drinks out, a birthday party, a movie, a sports game. All of those things are unhealthy. So is it possible to create something that has that same level of fun and entertainment, but it's good for you. And so we're not competing with, you know, the, a soul cycle or Barry's bootcamp class. We're competing with the wing night. And so it's, you know, instead mm -hmm. of going out for wings, come and do this, this hot and cold, but hang out and like connect. And so it kind of started with me finding these saunas and ice baths, you know, fringe outside of the city spaces to go at night, um, Russian heritage banyas and like loving them. And then seeing like hundreds of friends my age also resonate. And then we were like, oh shit, maybe we can make a cool version of this. That's like downtown. And then we combine that with also this need of like, okay, meditation, psychedelics are tough. Can we kind of take a lot of the stuff that's happening around those and like morph them together. And these classes now are the first in North America. So they're like, there's nothing like this that exists. So it's kind of this, you know, vibe of, yeah, social and connection, but also deep work, which is pretty cool. Yeah. There's something to it. Having, having been there, um, you know, I noticed a couple of things. One is I'm, um, like I'm pretty introverted. I don't ever go, wow, I can't wait to be around a lot of people. And initially I was sort of, um, apprehensive about that. But once you're in the ice bath, uh, for me that like that all, went away and I found myself like oddly comfortable, took care of a lot of that. Is that, is that a, I, like, I have a feeling that's not, I'm not a, a unique case in that respect. Yeah. So that was why I was interested in cold was that first time at, you know, Southwestern bathhouse was like, what is happening? Like, this is insane. And it's the cold itself is increasing the neuroepinephrine in the brain. It's, what is that? Well, it's a neurotransmitter. It's just a you know, a small thing your brain produces that increases mood, attention, vigilance. It's your mind saying like, hey, this could be dangerous. So what does that mean? It means you get out and you feel fucking alive, you know? And so all of a sudden, any social anxiety you have is gone. And you just did this thing that was kind of like, there's a little bit of fear. Even I've probably done like 2000 ice baths. And <laughs> still, when I go in, there's like a little bit of like, uh, you know, like, oh, that fight or flight's coming, that first step in. And so every time, even like seven years later, I feel amazing every single time. And so, you know, you think of what alcohol is doing, it's making it for someone who's an introvert, you know, maybe you don't really want to share, you don't really want to be around people, the hot and cold, remove those boundaries. So it's actually the perfect social lubricant 
it's like the perfect background for a bar, like social experience. You don't need the alcohol. And so people get in the ice, they come out and they want to share, they start talking. So you end up, even if you're introverted, not having that anxiety and leaving feeling connected. Yeah. Agreed. That was, that was very much my experience. Um, and there's, you know, there's a lot of woo woo in this kind of space. There's pseudoscience There's straight up sci-fi and fantasy pick your genre. Um, how have you avoided slipping into otherwise questionable territory? Yeah. So that's, that's one thing that was like really important to me and having a background in meditation and psychedelic medicines, you see this all the time and was just like, Hey, our goal is to be accessible. It's to be a little bit different than traditional wellness. So people think of like wellness, you think of like either clinic, depression, addiction, or like yoga and spirituality. And so we were just saying, look, we're not a place to go, you know, you can go deep, but we're going to let the experience speak for itself. So like some of the core pillars of our, of our product, we're like, one, it has to be fun. And so it's got to be something people feel in a session and like, you know, the music, the smells, the aesthetic, the feeling of the, the space has to really pull you in and be on par with, you know, all these other entertainment things you do. Two, we're going to ground everything in what's universally accessible, which are emotions. So everybody knows anger, compassion, forgiveness, guilt, shame. These are standard across the human experience. And so as it gets into any like spirituality, religion, energies, we don't touch any of that stuff. All viewpoints are encouraged, but just what we talk about is like emotions and that's accessible. So, you know, the experience is, is fun. You can feel it. The product is like immaculately designed. So it feels like, you know, kind of the same level of care is put into the space and the experience as like you would with a, an Apple product. And then three, we use emotions. And so with those three things, we think we built something really unique in wellness that doesn't, like we're just not trying to be, um, you know, pseudoscience and stuff like that. It's very important for us to, to talk about what's actually backed in research papers. So even in our training, it's like, you know, we have 10 papers on the effects that cold has, the effects that breathing has, the effects that hot has, we're using the, you know, um, info from the best podcasters, the Ben Greenfields, the Rhonda Patrick. So scientifically backed stuff, emotions, fun, beautiful product experience sort of makes the, makes the experience what it is. Let me ask you this. How do you solve the, you know, for the tension between positive impact and making money being profitable? Oh, we're still early, so we're just not profitable. <laughs> so, you know, like we we, we funded a lot of stuff ourselves. And for three years, like we had initially tried to build a 12,000 square foot bathhouse and COVID hit. And, you know, I haven't even talked about that. And so we scrapped a year. We went to 70 bathhouses. We spent a couple hundred grand on the design and just had to scrap it completely. I think what we've tried to do now is just lean into what people are asking for. And so you know, over three years, this wasn't a business. It was like an ice bath and then it was a garage and then it was a Zoom class and then it was a course. And we just like listen to what people ask for and then try to build that because, because we care. And so for now though, I, th I think this will be a profitable business. You know, it's, it's busy. Um, there's a lot of people coming, people love the experience. And it kind of, for me, it was always, if you create an amazing experience, people will pay and you'll, you'll make money. I think that's been a thread for you post-startup, right? Which is maybe shift away from, from chasing money and, and look for um, where the energy is. You, you're looking for that, for that energy and that sense of 
of community. And um, I think you're describing something else uh, that is like, don't build a, don't be, build a feature that people aren't asking for. There's that, right? So listen, build something valuable. If you build something valuable, you can obviously charge for it. Um, and I, I think then it's okay. So, you know, if you want to expand, you need money and to do that, you need a successful business. So how do you have impact, right? Like one studio can have an impact locally, five studios can have a bigger impact, 50 studios can have an even bigger impact. So at some point in time, realistically, you need to have a successful business model that's going to employ all these people. It's going to allow you to scale. So that's definitely important. But then also like, you know, a few things that we do, we give two free passes to literally thousands of people, basically anyone who asked, we just gave like free passes to come check it out. We have a scholarship program for the app. So if somebody says like, I can't afford it, you know what, we'll gift you with uh, a session. So every month I put a note into our WhatsApp chat offering, you know, private coaching, free app and a, and a bunch of free passes. And so there's just like doing the little things locally that like make you feel good, I think. So there's always going to be like some tension for sure. But what's in my mind is how do you create something that's great, but then allow a lot of people to experience it. And that does require a profitable business model, I think. Now, for something like this and, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in design alone, take some investment, take some money. Um, and, and you've got a great Twitter thread somewhere. I'll link to it in the show notes about asking for help. Um, I mean, for me, it took took a long time to get there to, to really understand that. Like, when did you figure out that you could just ask people for help? I think my first business, I, I, I built this telecom company. It was like a roaming solution to give you access to any carrier when you traveled. And I didn't ask for any help. And we ended up hiring, you know, senior people from Rogers, terrible decision, ended up spending like $20 million to build this thing, complete mistake, built the wrong thing tried to figure out everything on my own. And when I did that and the company failed, it was like super tough. And it kind of led to this like soul searching and the ayahuasca and all this stuff. And when it came back, I kind of thought in my head, I, I don't know why this happened. Maybe it was from like a Tim Ferriss podcast, or I don't know, let's call it origin unknown. But um, I kind of came back and I said, like, I'm going to talk to three people. I, I don't know what I'm going to do next. So I'm going to talk to three people a week. And so I, I went and I was just like, I'm going to talk to three great people a week and get their feedback on what I should do next. And that was it. And so I would interview like, you know, friends and just kind of whoever would talk to me about like, Hey, are you happy in your job? What do you do? What do you think I should do? And that worked pretty well, you know, through those contacts, I got like other job offers found out like, wow, these people are interesting. This is useful. And then I just started to rapidly scale that. And so at Ethereum, I started like, you know, okay, well, if I want to learn about building community, I should talk to three community managers. I'm like, guess what? And talking to those three community managers, they had the solution. So most of the time you're not solving something from scratch, you know? So if you're opening a fitness space, well, talk to the two best fitness spaces you know about like your billing system, the insurance, hiring trainers, like, and oftentimes people are willing to help. So now in my mind, most of my last seven years has been building my network and it's thousands, like 7,000 people. So if there's a problem I need, you know, I can draw on the Ethereum experience, my experience in psychedelic space, my sister's in fitness, and I've built this massive fitness database. And so always it's like, who do I know that can solve this problem? Let me talk to them for 30 minutes because you don't know what you don't know. So the fastest way generally to solve a problem is to find an expert that's done it before. And then that way you can focus on innovating on what you're going to innovate on, you know? So for us, no one's done sauna 
and ice bath classes. So we're actually just watching the customer experience and changing it live. And that's what we're masters in. But like, you know, creating culture for a, a brick and mortar business been done a million mm -hmm. times. So talk to, you know, an example, the owner of Gusto, they had the best culture I've seen. So I went to Gusto and asked to talk to the owner and she had a whole chat with me and like taught us about how to onboard uh, front desk staff and like make them feel encouraged. So I would just say, if you take one thing away from this is people are generally willing to help and they'll help for free. So if you wanted to ever reach out to me in my DMs and had a question, you know, you can follow me on Twitter, reach out, I'm, I'll respond. But um, mm -hmm. people are willing to help for free because they want to give back. It makes them feel good. It makes them feel valued. So you don't even have to pay. You don't have, you know, people will just be willing to help. And that was the biggest surprise because you feel like, oh, this person's never going to talk to me. I'm annoying them. And like, you're not, you know, if they don't want to talk to you, they'll just say no. But for the most part, you know, as, as an entrepreneur, I've been helped. Honestly, I've probably had mm -hmm. 4,000 meetings over the past like seven, eight years. And like a thousand of those, 2,000 of those are probably people helping me because I asked. And like the entire business was built on asking for help. Every investor, every, like it's all comes mm -hmm. from asking for help. So I just think that's like the number one thing to take away from this is like, be aggressive, reach out, people will help you. And if they don't, then like, so what? Ask the next person. It took almost, you know, a crisis to get to this. If you could go back in time, right, and and coach or meet your younger self when you're really struggling and you could make that period easier or you could take the struggle away or make your first business more successful, would you? No, probably not. Because I think if the first business would have been more successful, I would have just had more means for like drug use and, you know, all these other crazy things I was doing. And so I think it, what it took was because of that failure, it was like, okay, I'm like, you know, I'm 28, I'm living in my parents' basement. I'm struggling with cocaine use. Like I failed objectively. Um, all my friends are like crushing it. Like, what am I, what am I doing? You know, why is my life turned out this way? Which, which required introspection. And so it was like, okay, well, why was I even going after like money and like, why did I care so much what people thought about me? Why was I obsessed with like looking good and, you know, validation and all the, all these things. And so if that company had just been successful, it would have just meant I had more money to stay on that path. And so instead of like, okay, I'm unhappy, it would have been less clear. Right. So I think you can get in this rhythm often in your life where things are going okay. They're not great, but you don't need to inquire. And so it's a really dangerous place to be because you can go from 20 to, you know, 45, 50 and things are okay. It's just not enough to make a change. And it's just, you know, kind of rolling the same, the same playbook over and over. And so I, I think for me, if probably the way my personality is, if that first business had been successful, it just would have led to like an eventual crash. So it wouldn't have mattered that it came later because I had more money at some point, like the crash was coming with that behavior regardless. Um, so it's just, it's an interesting one because it's, I guess the takeaway there for anyone listening is just like self-inquiry, you know, understanding your emotions, why they're coming up, creating space, doing this kind of work from any age. It's just, just understanding your decisions and why you're making them is like the, the number one goal. And to do that, you need space. And, and, you know, hindsight offers a lot. When the pandemic hit, I wasn't sure we were going to make it as a business. It really hit gyms. And, um, but the thing was, I wasn't that, I was a little freaked out. I wasn't that freaked out. And I, I actually thought there was a while where I was like, this is going to, 
absolutely crash and burn. But the reality of it was actually small potatoes compared to the fear that I'd had of, of failing for, for years previous. The, the fear was always a lot bigger than the actual reality of it, um, which is kind of hard to maybe absorb when you're in the moment. But like, how would you, how would you message that? Or how would you communicate that to people who are kind of in their moment of struggle right now? So one is like, again, creating space, right? And so on the daily, like my partner, Miles owns a bunch of restaurants, Tim Hortons, he went from like, okay, I'm diverse across all these restaurants. And I'm, I'm doing extremely well, especially for for his age. And to like, I, you know, and my income definitely covers my expenses by like a fa- order of magnitude. And all of a sudden in COVID, these diversified things all go to zero. And so he's like, fuck everything I built. Like I'm, I'm a hospitality entrepreneur. What else can I do? Like I'm 38. I've been doing this for 15 years. And so he was in the ice bath every single day, just creating space because that feeling that norepinephrine, that boost of confidence, that letting go of, of, you know, that stress, that fight or flight system, it helped. So the first thing to understand is if you're in like acute overwhelm is creating space. So, you know, you can do it with our breathwork app with 30 minute deep dive sessions around fear release. You can do it with an ice bath. You can do it with exercise, whatever it is, that's going to turn off that like thinking mind and just kind of pattern interrupt. So I say that's always available when you're like under acute, like I'm going to lose my house. I'm going to lose my job. I can't, you know, survival, let's call it. And the other thing about failure, which isn't creating space, but it's just something to remember is that failure is not sustainable. So, you know, this is, this is exactly what you were talking about. It's like, oh, I thought my business was going to fail. And, and the, the fear was a lot worse than the failure. And so I had two years of like, my business is going to fail. I'm not going to be able to afford to live. I'm going to have to sell my apartment. I'm going to have to move out of Toronto. Worry, worry, worry. And then, you know, the failure comes and yeah, it was shitty. And I had to do those things. But guess what? Like one month later, a job opportunity in Israel. Oh, I'm excited again. So the thing is, when you're f- afraid of failure, there's like no hope. But once you actually fail, there's there's hope, right? And and so obviously not for everybody. Like some situations are just just not tenable. But for most people, that fear of like failure becomes like, okay, I failed. But now that opens the door for what's next. Maybe I'm gonna go back to school and learn to program. Maybe I'm gonna get a new like go to Brain Station for five grand and become a product manager. Maybe I'm, you know it gives it opens up um, the ability for something new. And so that's why failure. Like the fear of failure is tough, but actual failure is not tenable. Like you take what you've learned and you move it into the next thing. And over time, like I've failed as an entrepreneur three, four times. Now I know what I'm doing. So, you know, all those things I learned, all those supposed failures were just preparing me to like, you know, if I need to raise money, I need to start a business. I need to get a loan. I need to build a brand. I need to hire a team. I need to motivate them. I need to talk to customers. Like I know how to do all that. And so you're not really failing, even though it seems like that in the moment, you're building. And then if you're building and you have hope, it just opens up a lot. So if it feels like, hey, there's this massive fear, create space. And then to just understand, even if in that moment it's hard, that failure is not tenable to fail your entire life. Like you'll eventually grow. Indeed. Such a good interview. When I think back on it now, what really stands out is a lot of times, you know, we might talk about work and hustle and doing what it takes, or we'll talk about uh, inner work and kind of connecting to the deepest stuff. Robbie really feels to me like somebody that has 
one of the most complete experiences and perspectives around that and has built his personal and professional lives to match. So lots to absorb, lots to take away. Um, I always really enjoy speaking with him. So thank you to Robbie Bent for joining us today. Big thanks to you for hanging out with us. Uh, shout out to Othership, of course, and to the Unlearning Network. And as promised, I've got some guided breath work courtesy of Robbie Bent and Othership. One quick thing, if you're not already subscribing, following, rating the podcast, please do so. This stuff helps a lot uh, and it means a lot. Let's get into the breath work. We'll see you next time. <laughs>